Welcome to the Middle East File. I'm Jeremy Barker, Director of the Middle East Action Team at the Religious Freedom Institute. The Middle East File podcast features conversations with authors about publications on a range of issues impacting religious freedom in the Middle East, including governance and security, humanitarian assistance, geopolitics and foreign policy, human rights, and much more. To find more of these conversations and to learn more about the work of the Religious Freedom Institute, visit rfi.org. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Middle East File. And joining me today is Mr. Haider Elias, the president and co-founder of Yazda, a global Yazidi organization. Haider, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to speak here today. Yeah, and so Yazda was launched uh, in the aftermath of the genocidal attacks against the Yazidi community and others in, in the summer of 2014. And we're now eight years, more than eight years on, on from those events. And, and Yazda continues to be one of the leading voices both in Iraq and around the world for, for the Yazidi community and, and other religious and ethnic minorities. Um, but it seems like, unfortunately, while Yazda as an organization has grown and changed in those eight years, in some ways, the, the issues uh, that you're working on haven't changed, or at least haven't changed enough. And so that's, in some ways, what we're aiming to talk about today is a new report that was co-authored by Yazda and the Zvigian Partnership and published in September by the Woodrow Wilson Center um, called the, it, the title of that report is We Cannot Return, Collapse Security Threatens the Future of Yazidis and Minorities in Sinjar. Uh, so as we as we start off, uh, Haider, can you help us understand a little bit about the context of this report and why did Yazda and Zavigian partnership uh, put out this report and and why now? Yes, uh, thank you, Jeremy. I think it's important to to go to the details of why uh, there is a political uh, lack of political will in the both Iraqi and regional governments in, in Iraq, uh, why these people aren't able to return. Uh, the environment, the area has, has not been safe for them completely to, to go back there in, in addition to economic uh, hardships. Uh, we all know that in most of their homes south of Sinjar Mountain are destroyed and people don't have the ability to, to build and, and repair the infrastructure of the cities. But when it comes to the security, we have many issues with, with, with people returning and, and fearful of, of future attacks. And uh, this was our number one concern when Yazda was established in, in 2014. We uh, thought about an idea of never again and, and conditional return. And if people want to return, there has to be a genocide prevention process. But unfortunately, the Iraqi government hasn't done much about that. We know that ISIS has been militarily defeated, but the cells, uh, the sleepers are in Syria, they're in, in, in Iraq, they're in Turkey, according to our uh, information. 
And um, one of the issues that we were talking about, that what does it mean to have? Uh, feel free to stop me and ask other questions while I continue. Yeah. And, uh, what does it mean to have the Yazidis handle their, the security situation to their own? Back in 2014, uh, if Yazidis were in charge of the security, they would have notified their families, they would have alarmed their families that ISIS is uh, coming and it's out of control and they all should uh, escape, they should flee to the mountain. And then those security members would, would fight and become barrier for those families and some people will, would fall, some people would get killed and would injure, but imagine if we didn't have any uh, women or children captured, how, how great would that be? How better would it be? Imagine that if we didn't have more than two or three thousand people killed and as prisoners, not, not in the fight, not in a battlefield. So all these things. Imagine if people could bring their, their money, if they have a little bit of saving, a little bit of jewelry, anything so they can spend it on rent here in Kurdistan. Imagine people could just didn't run away barefooted. So all these things are related to the security, to the trust uh, that um, no longer it's there for, for the people. So when we go deep to, to the details of what it means for the Yazidis to handle this uh, security, it's probably not just police. Now because we have uh, the head of the police, we have... Yazidis both in both sides of the mountain in Sinjar city and also in the north We have three main forces at least two of them are Yazidis and But that what we need is few other things for the for the Yazidis to feel safe the head of the national security who's in Sinjar So that head of the national security Why is it not Yazidi? Why they because there have been many cases that have been left the Yazidi community in the dark. Some crimes happen, and then they go grab the wrong people, they torture them, and they beat them until either they die or they say, yes, it's me. They don't stop the torture. And that's, if, if these people were Yazidis, this would never have happened. They would uh, do their own investigation and do something about it. It's better to leave the crime than to accuse wrong people and, and almost kill the wrong people and sentence these wrong people. So to have the Yazidis in charge of national security, the military intelligence, the Iraqi army, uh, so these are very important elements for the Yazidis to, to take charge of it. Not just some police who don't have any authority. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's right in, in both pointing back to incidents that happened yeah, in the summer of 2014 up until, as you just pointed out, in the presence, the present, that, um, that lack of trust in the security actors that are there um, in protecting and representing the communities has had a, a huge impact on, on the, the ability of um, the community to be able to return back to Sinjar, and I think it's it's heartbreaking as even in the introduction of the report it talks about how the that so many are still living every day with the 
the long-term effects of genocide. Uh, and that's amplified in many ways because of the lack of addressing the security situation. Uh, but the report, this right now we're at an interesting time in Iraq in that they, after more than a year after elections, there's a new government that's been, that's just been formed. Um, and, and so with that in mind, that also prevents, provides another reason to look at the security situation. Um, and so as, as you think about kind of the, the main point for this report, but I think it, it came through already, um, yeah, how, how important to your mind is the security situation in Sinjar for the Yazidi community? Oh, it's it's very, very important. I think it would be one day would be the number one reason that people will either decide to go back or not. Uh, I think the the conflict we, we refer to the the formation of the, the, the new government in the last Temporarily, we should say, government of Kadimian. We at least knew some passion. We knew that some of the people who were in power were at least with, open to talk about, about the minorities, not just Yazidis. And they would be worried about it. They held a lot of meetings and making sure that the minorities are not left out and, and the, they have a, a country, they have a government that is taking care of them. Even though a lot of these those efforts were not productive, uh, were not have not have not achieved a lot, but there was passion, there was sympathy, and there was dialogue uh, for Yazidis and Christians at least, and so we were a, li- a little bit happier that when when Kadimi was in charge, when this government came in, we still haven't seen any signs of sympathy, any signs of that putting minorities as their top priority, or at least their priority. It seems like this government is trying to, uh, it has some unfinished business with other political party. It's too busy for firing people and too busy to fight with other parties, uh, Southern-like groups. And uh, it just seems like that the Yazidi situations just are not on their tab list. And what we need to do is is to advocate for that because the government has just been formed and we're trying to find a way to make sure uh, that we we go to this government and we establish, unfortunately, we just have to establish from scratch. And that's a psychological war for groups like Yazda. Every new government, we you would have to establish Re-establish all the background, all the groundwork that we do, we did with Academy and before Academy. But when it comes to the Yazidis and not return, not not being able to return is the militia groups in the region. For example, we have uh, Hashid, and we have uh, the Yapaji, and we have the PUK and, and KDP. PDK. We have also the Iraqi official or formal uh, troops, uh, Iraqi police, border police and army and national security. But the, the other groups, the militia groups have more power, unfortunately, than the national forces are, the government official forces. 
And it's one of the reasons people are not ignorant on that. They've suffered that long time ago and they know exactly what is happening there. So, for example, if there is an accident or there is a crime, then it's, it's like it's, it's gone to a black hole. Nobody knows what's going to happen. You don't know where to go. People hide the details. The powerless security forces from the government don't know uh, where to begin and where to start. So, to me, uh, the signs are not positive from the new government, but we can't be that negative. We need to fight for, even though we have to start from the scratch. Uh, but there is one thing, I think, even though every government has started that promise, they said it would be in our agenda to, within six months, to try to bring back these IDPs to their home. So by closing the IDP camps, literally. And um, we know it's naive decision because you don't, you don't just close IDP camps. Anybody can close IDP camps. Uh, is this going to solve the problem? Where are these families who don't have homes? To, where are they going to go? If they cannot afford... Uh, you know, about this education, how is that going to be built in Sinjar to hold capacity of a... We have 110,000 Yazidis in Sinjar. We need 200 more thousand Yazidis. We need space for that. So everything has to be able to hold half a million people for sure. Education, healthcare, electricity, the infrastructure of the cities, the houses. That's the That's the worrisome that we think it's just Iraqi government so naive yeah and that um, commitment or desire to within six months see the the rest of the IDP camps closed was that um, what office or or what part of the government was that commitment coming from I believe it was coming from the, according to my information, I spoke to the mayor, and it's mayor, I think, the new acting mayor was posting in his social media. So I met with him on an occasion and asked him, where did he get that from? I know you get that from the prime minister. He said, yes, it's from the prime minister. So uh, how people believe it's a general belief that he did say that because the mayor posted and this mayor doesn't have to post things like it's there against his own belief yeah yeah and we saw but came from the prime minister a number of months ago the yeah the the other idp camps outside of kurdistan were closed um previously about more than a year ago um and so this is is a step, but as you point out, the implications of what this means for for where families would go, um, what they're moving back to, the needs for infrastructure, that has to to come alongside of, or actually before you make a decision like um, forcibly displacing again some two hundred thousand people um, into yes, yeah, such a fragile situation. Um, one of the things um, that I really appreciated about the, the report was it was showing um, across, I think it was five or six different um, sectors uh, from humanitarian response to justice to law enforcement, 
infrastructure, strategic development, geopolitics. Um, the report did a really good job of, of pointing to how the lack of a real commitment to resolving the security situation was impacting all of these other priorities that, that matter not only for the Yazidi community, but really these are our core questions for Iraq as a whole. Um, and so I wonder if you could, um, as you as you think about um, yeah, how central the, the security situation is is to Iraq, what are some of the implications that, that you're seeing as an NGO in um, the lack of, of attention to, to resolving the security scenario? Yes, uh, we think that it's uh, like you just exactly like you stated. Security is, situation is central to a lot of these issues. We know the economy is really uh, another problem. When you don't uh, do the reparation, you don't do compensation. It's difficult, but the security uh, slows down. The the lack of security slows down a lot of a lot of help, especially the international help. And um, for the mass grave exhumation, for example, uh, they have to do a lot of planning when there is a security issue, or in general when the security is not approved. When they want to do something in Kurdistan, it's easier because it's secure. So we compare Kurdistan to, to Sinjar. How quickly could, could that be done? When it comes to exhumation process, uh, a lot of arrangements has to be done, especially where the UN is involved. And UNITAD is part of the decision-making with the mass grave department, with the martyr uh, department. And, and so uh, what they need to do is they have to coordinate with all the security forces, the military, the police, the, the regional authorities in, in, the, in that area to make sure that everything's fine. And then there is intelligence that something's going to happen, and then that slows down the exhumation. And also the number of people that they have to uh, be there because of security. So that slows down the work, and, uh, and also for the development project. Uh, a lot of UN projects, a lot of a lot of the overhead that is spent on the security, on the staff, on the transportation, because it's so difficult uh, for them to mobilize from one region to another, especially from Kurdistan to Sinjar. And a lot of these mega organizations uh, are spending their money on security and, in, and moving their staff back and forth. And also not completing some of the projects because of security. So this development project is also, uh, in some case, related to the security itself. Uh, return for sure, people cannot invest. There have been uh, dialogue in the past. Even U.S. Uh, Department of State once did a, a forum in, in Erbil about how to invest in the Nineveh Plains area. Um, and the idea was to move from us, the idea from us to move that same, same forum to, to Sinjar and, and encourage the businessmen to, uh, to put money in Sinjar, to, to do factories, to build apartments, to do a lot of things 
but the security is, is relevant to those people. And because of 2014, everybody lost everything, no matter what they did in this factory, especially. And they know planes in general, people lost their money. And it's also relevant here that people are hesitant to invest in Sinjar because of security. So almost everything now here is related to security in one way or another. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think that is a good a good summary of how how central this issue is. And as you pointed out a few minutes ago, the the number of actors are are not only yeah, pockets of ISIS, yes, the militia groups, um, but even even regionally, um, with airstrikes coming from Turkey as they target. Um, yeah, different groups that they um, think may be there that continues to have a, a massive destabilizing effect on um, on Sinjar and and how both the local population but also international organizations, potential investors think about the region. Um, and there's been, as you mentioned, a um, a weak presence from the Iraqi forces uh, there. Um, but there was kind of one attempt in the Sinjar security agreement that on paper um, tried to provide some form of solution to this. Um, from from your experience, from Yazda, as as deeply connected into the, the community, um, what's been the, uh, what's the perspective toward that, that agreement? What's included? What's not? Um, and, and then what's happened so far with regard to the Sinjar security agreement for real implementation in Sinjar? Yes, I think as I've stated previously, the agreement itself seemed to be, it was deliberate, I think, to be more complicated and hard to be implemented because this, the gradual, the steps uh, that this should be taken. The priorities uh, are just different than someone would want an agreement like that to happen is that uh, the security steps, for example, the Iraqi government wanted to appoint a mayor, uh, a city council chief, and then uh, recruit security from those especially those people who joined the militia groups, uh, encouraged them to come and join the police force, which was about 2,500. And then the, st the other step is to talk to the militia groups once we no longer need you guys. You can stay in places, you can stay in branches. If you have branches there, you can just, your presence will be there, but the whoever, from the police or military is there should be in charge of the security. The problem is here that the both government at one point were disagreeing on that the Kurdistan regional government wanted them to to kick out the PKYPG first and Hashid first and then we'll do with the other agreement. Iraqi government seems to be helpless and powerless to do any of the two. They don't seem to be able to have a war with 
Hashid right now it's more more powerful than the Iraqi army, and it seems like it's more difficult uh, for for the Iraqi government to implement that as a step one. And so I think we've been trying to talk to the KRG that if we can have the mayor and the public administration services set up first, the recruitment of police second, and then third, well, then then they can negotiate with with those groups, it would have been a lot better. And that's one thing. The second issue is the candidacy. And um, the mechanism is that um, KDP have to bring someone that is their affiliates for sure. (coughs) Excuse me. And their argument is that uh, even if you look at the elections, most of the votes come for us and we have the right to appoint someone who is affiliated with us. And we can't just put someone who's technocrat or who's independent or who's part of the another group. And so that's what that's a problem. So they have uh, appointed or at least nominated several people and people have not accepted those people. One of them was in a previous mayor uh, of Sinuni or Sinjar sub-district and had some history that of not being a good mayor when it comes to yeah, corruption issues and stuff like that. So it's right there now. Uh, currently, they also send a list of names. We don't know the names, but they're not public. But the dialogues have stopped now. They haven't talked about this for a while. The KRG claimed that they talked about it two months ago. I don't know exactly at what point they were discussed. But the discussion uh, did not go anywhere at the time. Uh, Just on that point around um, the lack of of implementation and and getting the sequence of these steps right, um, what do you see as the community... expectations from the communities, the need from the communities as the, the right way to move forward from here in, in putting clear deadlines and, and markers for, for really making progress on that. What, what would you like to see as, as Yasa and as, as the Yazidi community and the residents of, of Sinjar? Yes. I think it's... Um... I think it's, as we stated, uh, the important steps are, first of all, if we're, we're being realistic, then we know that some of the people are not coming back. Those who have migrated since 2014, they went to Europe, to, to U.S., some of them, and to Australia and Canada. They're not likely to come back, at least the vast majority of those people. Those who purchased home in Kurdistan, also are willing to stay in the region because it's the same Yazidi region. And they think life is a little bit easier here, safer. When we speak about those who are still in the camps, they have nowhere else to go, then the vast majority of those people are going to come back and uh, to, to their region. So uh, the recommendations for a government who's willing to help would be having the Yazidis handle the security uh, authorities, security charge positions, such as National Security Army, 
Iraqi police and etc. And uh, also the economic incentive. I think it would be really, really important to motivate the the families to go back by compensating per family or maybe per house that has been destroyed, giving them a little compensation to build their own home. And this will be really, really encouraging. We know that, we've tried that, we've seen that recently, how families are ready to go back to their own homes. So the economic incentive from the Iraqi government and also from the international community would be important for them, for the Yazidis to go back and leave these IDP camps. Now the other things would come as stage. Now we have, we would should say like three stages. Stage one security situation would be handled by Yazidis. Stage two, the economic incentive, the compensation and... Uh, the encouraging, encouraging families to go there by compensating their homes, their families. Stage three would be taking care of the services with the appointing a mayor and also public services, making sure that the services are handled to, are ready to handle, with the capacity to handle at least half a million people in the region. And this is electricity, and you know, enough power, enough water, enough teachers and schools, enough healthcare workers and, and hospitals and clinics. So uh, these things are, are really important steps for the Iraqi government and regional government to do, at least the, 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 the main, main points. Yeah, well, th- thank you. And it's, uh, is, is yet a, another reminder of the steps that need to be and, and can be taken to to support the Yazidi community and and others that have have been impacted um, by these realities in in Sinjar. Oh, well, Haider, um, we'll draw this to a close, but I want to thank you uh, and Yazda uh, and and those you're working with so much for continuing to be to be a voice for the Yazidi community and and for others uh, who have been impacted by this and. Uh, so thank you, and uh, continue to to see uh, more benefits that will continue to come from your work on these issues. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. It's really good to see you again, and it's good to connect and reconnect and talk about the issues that we've been working on uh, since 2014. You know. Our history go with Yazda and you guys go back to to, to 2014. So uh, it's great to see you guys still fighting and working alongside the minorities to make sure that they live in safe with dignity and, and and no problems. Hopefully, in the future, this will be achieved. We need to continue fighting. Middle East Vile podcast features conversations with authors about publications on a range of issues impacting religious freedom in the Middle East, including governance and security, humanitarian assistance, geopolitics and foreign policy, human rights, and much more. To find more of these conversations and to learn more about the work of the Religious Freedom Institute, visit rfi.org.